we spend a lot of time with artists, like just trying to talk them out of hiring us. You know what I mean? Because I feel, I'd say probably 80% of the time, you know, because I think it's super important to kind of feel your way through this, right? See what's working, lean into your audience, like see, you know, what's reacting, what isn't reacting. Like, have you put out music before? Like, um, or do you have enough music to have a consistent rollout strategy? You know, I, I tend to kind of discourage large spends when you're a developing artist and brand new. You know, um, there's just so much you need to figure out, like with best practices and what you're able to do on your own and, and who you are and who your fans are. You know what I mean? There's a lot of learning there. Yeah. I don't know that many artists have spent their way to success. And I think we've also seen the inverse, which is the limitations and restrictions is what makes creativity so good. So there's been videos that have happened by accident that cost nothing that have been some of the best videos. And, and I think limitations, uh, you know, can serve an artist really well. This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features annual fee, unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your royalties. Check out districtkid.com. What's going on? Welcome to the New Music Business. I'm your host, Ari Herstand, author of How to Make It in the New Music Business, the book. Today, my guests are Livia Tortella and Brian Popowitz of Black Box. Now, Livia Tortella, before she started this marketing agency, Black Box, she was the co-president and CMO chief marketing officer of Warner Brothers Records. And before that, she was the SVP of marketing at Atlantic Records. And before that, she worked at Island Def Jam. And before that, she worked at Polygram. So she has been in the major label system for many, many years. But uh, just under a decade ago, she broke out and she started Black Box. Black Box is a marketing agency, and they've worked with artists like Andrew Day and J.P. Sachs and Best Coast and Christina Perry and Dirty Honey and Jesse McCartney. They even worked on Kid Rock's faux Senate run. They created that. They are the ones, the architects behind. You remember that? When uh, everybody thought he was going to run for Senate, that was Black Box. And uh, with J.P. Sachs specifically, we, we talk about his story quite a bit on the show later on. They teamed up with J.P. long before his uh, record deal, before his publishing deal, when he was a completely independent artist, just a behind-the-scenes songwriter, and they helped take his song, one of his first songs, The Few Things, to over 20 million streams, bunch of podcasts, bunch of playlist placements. They also helped Andrew Day acquire over 250,000 social media fans and 15 million views on her music video. And they got playlists for her song Rise Up. We all know the song Rise Up with over 50 million streams. They worked with Bridget Mendler on getting over 50 million streams of her songs when they released it, when she released it through Black Box. So it's this hybrid company. It's not necessarily, a, it's not a PR firm. It's not a record label. They don't own any of your music. It's not a management company. They don't take a commission. 
it, they call themselves a marketing agency, uh, but they don't just work in paid media. We definitely talk about paid media as well. So through this, uh, Brian and Olivia, they break down their process of what they do and how they help an artist tell their story effectively through all the ways that you need to be telling your story these days, social media, advertising, through your music, of course, all of that. And they they give some real uh, great strategies on on how they help their artists to tell that story and to pull out the stories and work with them. This was a live episode for Ari's Take Academy students, and so uh, you're going to hear a couple of the questions. A couple of the students ask questions at the end of it, uh, but all the students got a chance to ask their questions uh, directly to Livia and Brian, and we cut out most of them here. However you're listening to this show right now, please subscribe, like, follow the show. Just pause this right now and hit that subscribe button. If you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review, those really help. If you're listening on YouTube, just leave a comment. Love to hear what moments were your favorite parts of this episode. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ari Herstand. You can find all of us that make this show happen at Ari's Take on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok. We are also on Clubhouse. I'm on Clubhouse at Ari Herstand. I regularly lead sessions there about the new music business. You can find me on Clubhouse at Ari Herstand. Head over to ariestake.com. Sign up on that email list. That is the most important thing you can do. Get on that email list. That's where all the most important info will be coming directly to your inbox. You'll hear about future episodes, all that stuff. All right, let's kick into the show. Livia and Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having us. Totally. So I'm coming to you live from uh, a hotel in Brooklyn, New York. I'm I'm traveling here. This is the first podcast episode that I've done where uh, I actually I haven't either been in my space where it's all set up or in person. You know, pre pandemic we did all of them in person, and it was nice to just kind of hang out and and actually like handshake. I don't know when was the last time you gave someone a handshake. That seems like <laughs> such an outdated thing these days. I don't even know how to do that anymore. My, I, I know. Memory, muscle, muscle memory. Seriously, it's just like we the social interaction, we've completely lost all of that. I don't know how, how that works anymore. Um, so, um, But on the upside, you can be in Brooklyn and we're all, you know, I'm in Portland, Livia's in LA and we're having a conversation. Exactly. That's, that's you know, that's that's one of the nice things that I think is come is coming out of the pandemic is uh they because all the companies has were forced to just kind of rapidly accelerate their technology needs and and make sure that everybody can meet like this everywhere else it's going to i mean it's already dramatically changed how uh we meet and how we interact and how we work and and i mean some studies are showing that it is it's actually in, increased productivity uh so i don't know i was thinking about like we you used to have an office and i'm like man are we even going to like go back into the office I, it's like i don't know i mean i don't get me wrong i love being in person with people and there's like, like electricity of of actual human contact which i think you know many yeah. of us are are desperately in need of but um, but no a lot cool. of it is uh speaking with like a friend of mine from universal like the -hmm. first thing that like the big hot topic of debate is whether or not they're going to keep their offices or whether or not they're going to let employees work from home because everyone's feeling like lifestyle wise and you know financially it makes more sense Mm -hmm. so totally should be interesting 
Totally interesting. So I'm uh, I'm very excited to dig in with both of you today um, because Black Box has been this this company. It's like this. It's this fun little like elusive thing in the in the industry where it's like people know about Black Box, but no one really can put their finger on what Black Box does. And uh, I've always heard about it, and my friends have worked with you guys and. Um, you know, you take like like JP Sachs, who I've, I've known for years. Like I, he worked with you, and we. Um, he was one of the. It was it was interesting because it's like he told me about you, and then a few other people that were working with you told me, and I was like starting to hear Black Box a lot, and I was like, man, this is so interesting. And the more I dug. Uh, the more elusive it actually was, and so I'm I'm so happy that we can like dig into to what Black Box is, and I love that um, you have it says Black Box is an integrated marketing approach designed to empower artists to create, nurture, and engage an audience that will love them back, signed or unsigned, large team, small team, or no team, developed or emerging. If you don't have real fans and real engagement, you won't have a lasting business, and that's the cool thing is like you you say that you're kind of this this independent company with a DIY ethos which I'm of course all about um so for just if you can just give us what black box is to break it down and then we're going to dig into um a lot of the approaches with some of your case studies that are so impressive and so interesting to me but but give me what is black box tell me a little bit about black box um well, we're a music marketing agency, first and foremost, um, and we kind of decided, and both Brian and I have had label experience, you know, but we decided that an agency was the only way to go to really kind of really honor a different approach, right, when it comes to artist development, like starting with the narrative of the artist, right, and extracting that narrative, and then once you've done that, really like thinking about the audience, what's what's the most engaged audience that we could connect the narrative to, right? Mm-hmm. And like teach artists to do that for themselves. And then the marketing drivers come last, right? Mm. Like the partnerships come last. So we want, and normally when you go into certain situations, it starts with the marketing first, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you're right in selling mode, right? To your partners about this is why you should care. You know what I yeah. mean? without a real examination from the artist's point of view of what's important about what I'm doing. Like Mm. what's like, what am I trying to say? Who am I trying to be? And I think the marketplace is really caught up with that kind of thinking. So we are a music marketing agency. We care about music. We still care about music. We're not going to be the agency that all of a sudden goes into movies or goes into brands. We want to stay in the music business. And we realize that it's so essential for us to exist because the steps, the zero to 20 steps aren't really being done by other, you know, fashions of factions of the uh, music industry Mm -hmm. purely because of volume. So streaming has just unlocked this crazy volume. So we're trying to be the the antithesis of that, Mm. you know, and really go boutique and, and really zero in. I love that you mentioned narrative. Um, That is something that I, I don't, uh, I don't know if many people really understand what you mean when you say the narrative of the project, because I think uh, a lot of artists just think, well, I have the music. And do you just mean like what my song is about or the album? What do you mean when you say narrative? Brian, you want to take this one? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a, a song is a part of an artist and mm-hmm. the artist is the central asset to make it 
vanilla and boring in in the career. And so for someone to care about a song doesn't mean they care about the artist. So we say, what is your narrative? Why should anyone care? Um, hit songs are great, but they're also fleeting. And sometimes they yield a career and sometimes they don't. Um, and it kind of comes down to just the simplicity of, of, of entertainment and influence and being a public figure. Why are you interesting? Why should someone care? And how do you take that affinity and use it to power your vision of success and your goals? Um, and that is why we focus on the narrative. Every artist has their own story and no one else's. And we use that as a new, unique opportunity to extract that from them and try to figure out how do we put that into play uh, for audiences across every digital touch point to how they mm. release their music to uh, you know their music video treatments so that they are telling a story that people can connect to. And our belief is that the connection to a story is what creates the business and the, mm. the, the fandom. And that that in itself can power the long-term career of an artist. So you're really looking, when you bring on an artist, um, I'm assuming each artist you work with has different goals. You mentioned goals. Um, it's not necessarily like every artist where we're, you know, our goal is we're going to get 10 million streams and that's like what we do or something, you know, our playlist, playlist. but you mentioned goals. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're a marketing agency. It's, it's um, so how do you kind of um, do you have kind of a a somewhat uh, structured, rigid uh, kind of checklist that you work with your artists, or are you more or less acting as like a manager that kind of comes in and works to help the artists achieve their goals? Well, I just jump in quickly on goals and say that you know. One of the unique opportunities in being an independent agency is to be able to look at success in a way that's not predetermined by the relationship we have with the artist. And sometimes a goal in the short term or long term might be, I want to have millions and millions of streams. But then the question is why? Mm. And the unique opportunity in a modern music business is to qualify success in any which way, which could be, I want to have a social influence on the world. And therefore, you start reverse engineering to have a voice. You need to amass an audience. How do you do that? That informs action. Or it could be, I want to have a huge touring career. I want to get signed to a major label and be on top 40. It all comes with no judgment, but to know where you want to go allows us to understand the path to get there. And so mm -hmm. I would say with respect to, you know, do we serve as management or not? Uh, mm -hmm. Managers are cut from their own cloth. They serve a vital, you know, long-term role in the ecosystem of how the music business works. But I think mm -hmm. what we can help to do is provide clarity as to what the goal is and then architect the path to get there. Yeah, I, I would sort of add too is, is we, we become a really good extension whether or not the client is an artist with no manager to a manager, you know, with a roster mm -hmm. to like a record label, we come in as that kind of um, extension of what they're trying to come with very different things that they want to achieve, you know, and uh, very rarely do they come to us and say, I have a song, you know, I, I need you to get that song out there. Everyone's really thinking about their career. Well, you can't think about your career without really knowing, like, what are you trying to say? Like, what, who's the audience you're trying to draw? And also the streaming economy has changed things forever in mm -hmm. the sense that, you know, 
the genre thing has kind of died. It used to be back in the day, right? There was a path to alternative, right? If there was a path to pop. Now it's about moods and it's about kind of what are you trying to say? So like you could share a playlist and be completely different artists, right? With different paths. Right. So I think the complexity of that is all tied into narrative. Interesting. It's because, right, Livy, you, you come from the major label world, right? You were you worked at labels for most of your career before you started Black Box. Absolutely. And I was really and, lucky enough to run a couple of them, but I saw mm-hmm. what what the what was happening, right? As mm-hmm. the um, market was changing. Right. And and as uh, you know, as as the industry has evolved and, and shifted and there just isn't that development necessarily as much. And so much of, of um, the departments at record labels uh, have kind of been fragmented. And it's almost kind of like Black Box could have theoretically been a department within a, a label, but now it's like fragmented outside here. And and that's why so many distributors are out there also have like what, you know, are called label services. And it's kind of like you can kind of patchwork this career together independently and in DIY. Um, so let's talk, let's talk specifics. Um, I, so we had Seth Callen, who is JP Sachs's manager on the program. Um, and he talked kind of all about uh, when he jumped on, but he came on uh, a couple years after, maybe three years, I think, after you guys started working with JP. Um, mm-hmm. With Black Box, uh, you know, JP's song, The Few Things, got over 20 million streams, uh, a bunch of, of Spotify placements, um, you know, got a pub deal. Um, now, of course, JP Sachs is a massive pop star and nominated for for everything and, and you know, is is uh, got hit, hit songs out there on the radio. Um Talk about the process of when he came in and the conversations that you had with like, all right, what are the goals? How are we going to approach this? I know JP was a a behind-the-scenes songwriter for many years, but he didn't really have much of an artist career to speak of. So what was that – what were those discussions like and and kind of how did you work with him? Well, this is my favorite story because uh, JP found us. He actively found us online. And uh, asked for a meeting and he came in and it always starts with great music, right? And a great artist with a vision. So like, Mm -hmm. obviously with JP, you get that, right? So right away, but you're right. He was, he was like part of baby faces, like writing, you know, kind of a group at that point, everyone loved his writing, but no one quite saw him as a musician Mm-hmm. But he did. And we did. We saw him as an artist, like and we knew that he was an artist trying to get out. So it did start with really getting familiar with the narrative. Mm-hmm. And like I said, JP has got a really strong vision. So he already had the curated visuals that he wanted to say, obviously, very vivid imagery from his writing. Uh, but just the act of like, how do you translate such an intimate songwriter to the Internet? Like, what's his relationship with his fans going to be? How does he show up? I think that's where we were the most instrumental. Sure, we introduced him to, like, John Stein and, like, you know, uh, you know, at Spotify. And we did all of that, obviously, early. Uh, we kind of connected him to the folks at Apple kind of early. Everyone mm-hmm. feels really proud. Uh, obviously, the Arista connection, too, was uh, mm-hmm. we brought that in. But um, and he took it the, the whole way. Um, 
But for us, what was really exciting is taking that 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 intimacy that he has as a writer and translating mm-hmm. that into a social strategy. So mm-hmm. I would say that is the thing that I'm the most proud of, because I think mm-hmm. that that helped cultivate his live persona and how he engages with his fans. Like everything really came from that. Right. You know, he could have easily hung out behind that visual curtain, you know, yeah. And but he would have been elusive and nobody would have connected to who he is, you mm. know, as a writer and as a storyteller. So that's that's one of the most proudest, you know, moments I've had at Black Box. And it was with JP on that. Cool. On that front. You know, I would just add that um, the process of getting there is something that we we do with all artists. And and for JP, it's listening to his story and for any other artists listening to their story. I think with JP he was, he's such an incredibly honest person and he has these feelings that he can articulate in a way that makes you feel something different than if you or I were to say that. And by, by extracting that at the beginning, just going back to the narrative conversation, you you have to harp on these things that, you know, are relatable, that are your special sauce, that are these things that you can show through your socials, your music, your art, your creative in such a way that brands you. And the consistency of that, the repetition of it um, is what allows an artist to be more than a song. And I think that, you know, he, he exercised that so beautifully and it was an integrated part of everything that he did so Mm -hmm. that, you know, he doesn't, he's not the guy who just had a radio hit and then you don't hear his name. I think, you know, he continues to nurture it by being his honest self. And that's something that we believe any artist can do. And it's not to say that it's easy by any means, but that if you have your own story and you're not trying to be anyone else, you figure out how to represent that through all the you know, again, digital touch points that you have, you build something that's a lot more long lasting and you can use that vehicle of radio and the huge exposure that you get, not for a fleeting moment of a song, but for the long term. And mm-hmm. my hope with him and all the artists that are able to do that is that they have a career that they can tour off of, that they have a social audience that they can create experiences with in the long term and foster a good business and a good relationship with them. And, and mm-hmm. he's a great example of that. So break it down how that works. Um, let's talk specifics here. So he comes in or any artist comes in. What what does the onboarding process look like and how do you get to the root of that? Because I think one of the most challenging things that every artist deals with is what is my narrative? How do I tell this story? Yes, I want to connect with fans. Yes, I want fans. But like, how? How do you do this? So break it down. <laughs> It's the most uncomfortable thing. It really is. Because a lot of artists feel it's all in my music. If you just listen, right? But but if Wayne, like one of the funniest thing when working with Wayne Coyne, for example, is one of the artists that kind of is the flaming lips inspired my company too, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, if you're not interesting, go home. And that's Wayne Coyne, who's somewhat, you know. Uh, definitely. He rides a bubble at his shows. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, and you know, but he, he grew up without social media, but understood it like right mm-hmm. away. Right. So I think the hardest part for an artist is to talk about themselves in this way, you mm-hmm. know, as a personality, you know, some artists understand it intrinsically, very naturally. They, you know what I mean? They, they see how they project and other artists need some help. So mm-hmm. the onboarding is like a two to three hour meeting that, we get to ask anything. Like we really, we keep it very personal. You know, oftentimes artists like start to go into how they got signed or the the music industry part. And then we try to bring them right back to the intimate 
story of themselves, because to me, that's the interesting part. That's what mm-hmm. fans are going to want to know. And those are the story, we call them verticals. Those are the story verticals that we lean in to build this evergreen digital plan. Mm. So it's a yeah. very in-depth uh, process. And, you know, like what more awkward moment can you have than meeting with a you know group of strangers at this point on Zoom and sharing your intimacies in your life? And um, through it, it's been amazing for us to actively listen and hear, you know, the depths of story. And I, I would say that they don't have to be all rags to riches or, um, you know, something that you see that's romanticized in a film. Every artist really does has a story. And um, I think the exercise of, of any artist independent of working with us, kind of extracting their story, thinking about their identity and the perception that they would like to have with their audience in the world, yeah. understanding their musical brand and what that means from a touring perspective to it being a studio rat to how they feel about collaborations, and then going deeper into the visual brand or digital brand is a really healthy exercise for any artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, through it, we've had probably the best laughs, we've had tears, we've had it all. Um, mm-hmm. And it really, I think for us, that's this tone of trust because we are privileged with the intimacies of an artist and it is of great responsibility to take that and to try to action it. Um, and when an artist is able to outlay that in the beginning, um, there's this understanding that's really serious. There's no mm-hmm. plan B, there's only a plan A. How do we take this story and help empower them with it to mm-hmm. build authentic connections? And um, there's no tricks or, or, or kind of preparation for it. It is just mm-hmm. purely their story. Yeah. So, okay. And from there, okay. Mm-hmm. we, yeah, I just want to add from there, we take sort of elements of their story. Mm-hmm. And from those elements of the story, we kind of start to apply digital strategy to it. We'll make, um, so, so, you know, Brian and his team will say, lean into TikTok here, or we'll look at the natural tendencies that an artist has, and then we'll try to connect the story to an actual plan that they can execute with or without a song release. Because sometimes the song release could be a real impediment for an artist to really be that artist on social media and keep communicating with fans. Like mm-hmm. with, with, you know, whether you have a song out shouldn't stop your communication with your audience, right? That's something that's really important to us. So having this evergreen story there that they can do at any time And also what's part of the process is like, we've had artists like JP, like the aces who've really leaned into the process and they've discovered, hey, wait a second, that part of my story isn't really working and they'll come back and then we'll reevaluate. You know what I mean? Mm. Those are the artists where it's really fun because they're really understanding themselves in the third person in many ways, Mm. right? Like what they want to share, what they don't want to share. So the process, this is very fluid and it goes back and forth. So, I, I mean, the, the, to have that awareness of what part of my story is working, what part of it is not, I, I think not only is that challenging, but how it can come across as manufactured at times, I think, if it's not maybe done in an authentic way. So, Correct. I'm still struggling when you like how specifically does an artist communicate their story when we're complex human beings? Everybody has a thousand stories, you know, more, millions yeah. of stories. But to take, you know, I'm assuming that after the three-hour uh, onboarding conversation, you pull out like 
maybe two, three, four most interesting things that you're like, you know what, let's start focusing on these points. Then how do you take that? Yeah. yeah, How do you take that and put it, you call it a digital strategy? What does that even mean? Like, like, give me the how, like specifically. Well, I mean, first off, artists are so, you know, I think Livia, as you say it, the artists have the third eye. And so we really trust what they say. We also have kind of the disclaimer, this is not media training. We're not trying to figure out, you know, the story that we can tell to media. We're trying to Mm. hear your story and then apply it. Um, And it often becomes a chronological thing. And again, as Livia mentioned, we'll course correct. Okay, great. I get it. This is what you're telling us as, as you, the artist, but what about you, the human? And that's where the layers start to unravel. And I think through consistency of artists that are well-established superstars to uh, mm-hmm. artists that have never released a song, you get a sense that, that artists know how to pull the things that hit them in the gut and how to talk about it. Um, and we you know, actively listen and try to figure out what those things are in consistency. So then what do you do with that? Well, as Livia was mentioning, we build um, tools that become the guidelines for it. We have an internal document that's just called the narrative guide. And so it takes those verticals. And again, we try to get to three, four or five. If you're all over the place, how is anyone going to understand? But if you're too one dimensional, why would anyone care? And so oftentimes our verticals are built on uh, something that has to do with your unique approach to music, your personality, your style, your interest. It has to be accessible. It can't just be this highfalutin thing that no one understands and it's too mysterious. Mm-hmm. And we try to we try to organize that. And so we'll build a document, we'll, we'll define what the vertical is. And then of course, a plan is only as good as its execution. So we talk about, here's how other artists show their personality through social media. Here are five ideas that you can start to use as an evergreen nurturing of this vertical. And then in the practice of running through a marketing plan with an artist, rolling out a record, look at our guide and say, how do we tell this story through the release of the song? What are the points of intersection? Is it through the video treatment? Is it through our social campaigns? Is it through who we're partnering with? And the consistency of it um, and the undying approach to being your unique self is what will eventually create the connection with fans. And you just have to be but relentless I, about it. But I it. want to address something you said, Ari, which is really important, the manufactured mm-hmm. sense of it. I actually feel, well, first of all, there's a great Harvard Review article on authenticity and what's really authentic and what isn't authentic, which mm-hmm. I want to share with you so you can Please. read. Is authenticity no editing? Is authenticity, here's what you see and what you get. Right. I believe Mm -hmm. I believe artists are doing this in their head. Right. They're they're making decisions right based on what they want to share and what they don't want to share. Right. So we actually help them get more honest and more transparent with their own process. Oftentimes Mm -hmm. we get artists coming in and they want to give everyone the guided tour. Well, nobody cares about the guided tour. Right. You know, you might think in your mind, this is, you know what I mean? But nobody cares. Mm-hmm. They want part right. human, part artist. They want to like, they want to see the unexpectedness, right? So mm-hmm. oftentimes we are breaking them down. We are bringing them closer to the the unexpectedness of, of them as an artist. That's a really good point because I think artists struggle with, um, they hear I need to be authentic, on social media, but is authentic meaning uh, I need to be showcasing every aspect of my mundane life? 
No. <laughs> like you want to be watching me cook eggs for five minutes and like that's not interesting to anybody. And it doesn't really help reveal anything about yourself that you cook your, other than you cook yourself breakfast sometimes. Like, but but that's but that's the balance is because I, I don't think, you know, th- there's much guidance there where we know because I uh I think a lot of artists really struggle with, okay, now we know that these are the three points of my story that you think are going to be most interesting. And then it's like, all right, well, this store, this Instagram story of me walking through the streets of Brooklyn has nothing to do with these three points. Should I be sharing it? I don't know. It's my authentic self right now. I'm walking. I think it's interesting walking through the streets of Brooklyn, but it doesn't have to do with uh, the moment when I moved to Los Angeles that changed my life and I got in the car accident and it changed the trajectory of my entire career. It doesn't have to do with my mom, you know, in like those three points. So I'm assuming the artists are probably like, ah, can I share this story? Like, what's that process like? <laughs> the answer is it's trial and error. The answer is yes, okay. share it and see what happens. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because that's part of it. And part of it is learning what feels natural to this and what doesn't. And oftentimes there's something in the narrative that they've been trying. And that's what I'm talking about when they come in mm-hmm. and they say, that's not working. I've been mm-hmm. trying to tell that part of the story that I thought was important. And I'm realizing I don't care to tell it. It's not something that excites Mm. me about social media. Great. It's gone. Like, Mm. and that's the thing. I think if more artists understood that that's what the process was versus, Hey, social media, like we want you to show us making eggs. That's exciting. Like a lot of artists are turned off by that. Like that's bullshit. I don't want to do that. Like, you know what I mean? So if they knew what you knew that it's more than that, that it's, mm-hmm. it is an expression, that it is connected to the music that they're making, that it is, that it has a structure, that they have control over that structure mm. versus like the old days where a reporter would decide what story they were going to tell. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how some of these indie artists are more comfortable with that than mm-hmm. they are telling their own story, which I can never understand. It's like, you're in that you're in the kind of hand like you're in the fate of this spin reporter or you know when they were around isn't it better to be able to tell your own story and like somehow like control mm. the outcome of that you know what i mean um i don't know like the, those are things that we always ask yeah and i i also would add this Ari. you know in that instance of walking down the street in brooklyn it's like we've now done hundreds of campaigns you know what the secret is there's no secret it's all trial and error like we study the best practices just to figure out how to break them. We are fortunate to have this kind of immediate feedback loop to look at data. But then again, you're looking at data and saying, well, what's the value of this like? What are they liking? Are they liking uh, that I look nice or are they liking me and what we're trying to do? Is there a deeper connection and, and how do you assert value to it? And there's no judgment to it, but there's a whole process of it. And I think in some ways I feel uh, for a lot of artists that, that uh, to no one's fault, you know, there's a little bit of reverse engineering from what we thought we knew about social media to where we are with social media. Mm. You know, you read the Mashable article, post it this time and share this. And, you know, one like is as good as the next. And this is how you game it. And this is, you know, your path to virality. And then it's over or it doesn't happen or the algorithm changes. And what are you left with? So for us, um, you know, every artist is completely different. And, you know, if, if someone thinks they're signing up for that magic secret, we, we 
tell them it doesn't exist, but we can work mm-hmm. to get to what works for them. And so we implement all sorts of things, what we call it social experiments, where we say, try all this stuff. Tell us what feels cringy. Tell us mm-hmm. what feels cool. Uh, go on, on Instagram Live. And if five people show up and you feel like that was a terrible experience, t- let, let's talk about it. And, and through the process, you learn what works and what doesn't work. And I think mm. the more empowered an artist is, the better they understand the platform, the more comfortable they are in their own skin with social media, the more authentic it becomes and the more natural these points of their true story integrates versus trying to look for the latest trend or you know overthinking what they should and shouldn't do. Real quick, I want to let you know about Two Lost. Two Lost is a new distribution company to the space. And let me tell you, I am very impressed with them. I, I got a full deep dive demo with the founder. And yeah, they're very innovative. And when you come into the distribution space at this stage with how crowded it is, you better be innovative. And they are. Yes, they will get your music out to Spotify, Apple Music, all the places, plus 450 other outlets around the world. They do not take a commission. This is why 300,000 artists and labels have already used them. They've already distributed 7 million songs. They offer payment splitting, and they don't charge your collaborators for this service, for the payment splitting. They will just pay your collaborators directly for free. They have publishing administration with BMG, so you know it's legit. A lot of distributors have... have fallen into trouble with using some other uh, less than legit pub admin services. Well, Two Loss is partnered with BMG. You know it's legit. They offer instant royalty advances. Uh, This is something that's very cool. And if you have historical streaming data and you need just a bulk payment up front, they can see how much your music has earned in the past. I'm like, all right, we think we know what you're going to earn in the next three years. Here's a check for 100 grand or whatever it will be. And you can just click a button and you get that distributed and um, into your account immediately. They do lyrics and credits distribution for free. They have a very innovative analytics platform where, yes, you will see real-time analytics for Spotify, Apple Music, but also Pandora, Deezer, SoundCloud, and Peloton. They're the only ones that do Peloton. Uh, They also have a service where you can search the internet wherever your music is being used And it will just show you a chart of everywhere, every TikTok video, everywhere, every YouTube video, everywhere your music is possibly being used. I've never seen this before. That was very cool. They'll register you with SoundExchange. And they have a fraud prevention tool. And they're doing fraud prevention. So if you're worried about your music, you know, getting a bot attack or something like that and getting ripped down, which we've seen is a big issue. uh, They have fraud prevention tools that are better than most other distributors that I have seen. Check out Two Lost. You can just go to twolost.com. Use the promo code Ari's Take for three months free and try them out. Let them know what you think. Mm. So you mentioned a little bit ago about, um, and we've talked about like throwing brand a couple times or the aesthetic or kind of the visual component. So this is kind of the philosophy more or less behind like what we're talking about. But how is that? Uh, communicated specifically visually because social media is such a visual medium uh, and and artists feel most at home through an aural medium, through an audio medium, how do you actually get to that point of them feeling comfortable communicating visually with their audience? Yeah. 
So the way we do it is the way we do it on the social, you know, strategy, like the visual is just an extension of the story, right? So uh, normally in my old life, right, you meet an artist, you throw them in a photo shoot, right? Right. You start starting to set up a song and, and all of a sudden, like, I don't want to wear that shiny shirt or I don't want to wear that jacket. That's not me, right? And then they're just, there's all this. So where we start is more kind of like, getting on the same page with the artists on what they like, the, what mm-hmm. their visuals are. So we do a poll of a lot of different things. We, we ask them what colors that, is there a color palette that they are, they're drawn to? Um, are there any covers? What are they thinking for their single cover, if anything? Of course, there's certain artists that are better than others. There's mm-hmm. some artists who have the visual thing down beautifully. And then there's artists that are struggling, right? So we show them a bunch of different things. And I always love the quick study. I'm drawn to the artist that's the quick study. Like you show them the tools and bang, they know exactly, you know, all they needed was to be shown. If it's too hard and they keep changing their minds, there's definitely a lot more work that needs to be done. But Mm -hmm. we show them a lot of different visuals. We have a deep um, repertoire of like creative directors that we keep track of. And it's part of the black book. And we try to kind of connect them with creative directors that they would respect. Mm -hmm. So it starts off like that. It starts like, what's your artwork going to look like? Here's some photos, like photography, uh, PR references. What does that look like? And then we look at video references and Mm -hmm. we always consider social. And oftentimes a lot of companies don't really think about social. They think about premium content, but they don't think of social as its own thing. Right. And right now, most fans are only going to see your stuff on social media. So for us, that's like a really key component on how we get to, you know, the, the visual strategy. It's it's so key because we can create a visual world as best we can in partnership with the artist, but if that's creating limitations, if it's cost prohibitive, if that doesn't allow an artist to be authentic and real in a moment that they need to document and share with their fans, then it's no good. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it comes with this consideration of here directionally is something that represents an artist that they feel authentically confident in just like their story. But how do you actually action that? And there's, you know, so many ways by, you know, making a recipe on Visco to have an aesthetic that's consistent to, you know, really trying to figure out like, who's that friend that that's starting to play with film and, you know, can, can take some shots and how does that all of a sudden, you know, become mm-hmm. a sustainable solution to, to create a consistency of your visual world without, you know, creating added layers of, of limitation and finding that right balance is always just like social, a bit of a trial and error, but it's super mm-hmm. important for the visual aspect to, um, be really tangible to how you action it versus here's a picture of Taylor Swift. Like, let's just do that. That's not going to be real for most artists. Sure. And, and you mentioned, um, kind of creative, uh, directors. Uh, we just had Jessica Severn on the show. Uh, she worked with Scooter Braun for 10 years, uh, running kind of the creative direction at, uh, his company for, uh, you know, all of his artists, of course. Um, Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and Carly Rae Jepsen and everybody and and now she's off on her own doing freelance creative uh, direction and it's a similar process we we talked about when you bring in an artist is like how do you create that that palette as you call it you know um, which is great now um, 
so now once you have all of this in place, you have the narrative, uh, you have what is more or less working and feeling right, authentic, feeling um, that makes sense on social media, how to tell that story. You have the visual component. You have the aesthetic. Do you ever work with your marketing company? Do you ever do uh, paid advertising? And if so, when does that come into play and what does that look like? Yeah, I would say that uh, paid media is different for all sorts of artists. Obviously, um, you know the limitations of the algorithm and your audience creates a challenge. You have to figure out how do I get to all these people who care. I think that you know there's been tons of studies that suggest that the number one reason why people don't see their favorite bands live in their city is because they just didn't know. And so we have to yeah. solve that problem. And sometimes mm-hmm. paid media is just a simple way of, of doing it. Um, but paid media in isolation of a marketing strategy is just impressions. And so for us, um, you have to attribute a different level of value to a fan that's acquired via <laughs> paid media, a view that's seen via paid media, a stream that's had via paid media, um, turn that into something that's not just transactional, but that's long-term or else it's a service to anyone. So Paid media is, I think, very bespoke and, and, and different for every project, some of which require very little. Others may need more just based on where their, their fans are. For us, mm. our thought is, how do you use paid media from strategy to execution to optimization to reporting in such a way that's additive to the goal? Mm. And um, for those reasons, this idea of kind of evergreen pumping fans through social, uh, through paid media, um, is less ideal than using paid media as a proactive way to put your authentic story in front of your prospective fans, Mm. just with the recognition that that's not where the job stops. That's where it starts. You bring someone in, how do you make sure that affinity is then built? Um, Mm. And through that paid media can be an incredibly valuable tool um, when you're looking for means of amplification. Mm. So is that, um, I'm assuming, that kind of comes later on in the process, or is it more about the uh, the timing is very important? Like you probably would would use paid media on a single release or something like that, and is that right? Yeah, we're always looking for our moments of opportunity. Okay. So when one plus one can equal five, we'll go for it, and, and paid media often becomes that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's different for every artist, and I think that's. I know it can sound frustrating, but that's an important thing for developing artists to know. There is not a one-size-fits-all plan. There's not a formulaic strategy. Um, what we can say unequivocally is that, um, you know, again, advertising in isolation of other drivers is just impressions. Mm-hmm. But when ads are a part of the sum of the parts that's telling a story, it can be really powerful. So we we, we try to stay opportunistic to those moments um, and exploit them um, through paid media. But as a way of trying to show that your graph continues to stay up by just flooding, you know, an ad server with ads, we find that to be generally unproductive. Gotcha. And specifically, uh, what are you finding right now uh, that is working in paid media? I, it is dramatically shifted. I mean, we work a lot with with uh, specifically, you know, Facebook, Instagram ads, Instagram story ads has been kind of the bread and butter for a while, but. 
um, a lot of rates have risen. Has it's it's you know um, Apple has recently come in and said uh, with, with their iOS devices that they're not giving Facebook, they're not allowing Facebook the data anymore that that Facebook once had access to, which is everyone in the marketing world is freaking out about. Um, they're like, well, what are we going to do now? Um, do you work? Do you use YouTube ads? Do you use TikTok ads? I know that's just getting started. Uh, where are we at in in the paid media space? We use all of the above for very specific instances. We're always defining our efforts by goal and having a way of trying to measure it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if the goal is to get more YouTube streams, if it's to get more fans, is to engage your existing fans, we look at our tool shelf and we we figure out, you know, what we want to do and bring in. I think it is really interesting what's happening with iOS and how consumers or users of iOS are going to recognize that their data is incredibly valuable to Facebook mm-hmm. and um, how, you know, if there's a mass exodus of what's being shared, it's going to have gross implications on, on Facebook and, and Instagram's ability to hyper-target, which is something that they've been able to do so effectively for so long. Um, so, you know, look, the short answer is we, we use Facebook and Instagram ads, AdWords, out-of-home media mm-hmm. at times, you know, for the sake of positioning. Mm-hmm. That means um, like billboards and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. all, all of it, and and Bus um, stops, yeah, exactly, and 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 so we have to look at what the goal is and and such. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, you know, just this week we launched an influencer campaign, not with the idea of like, hey, let's throw a lot of money at this and see if a viral dance comes of it and cross our right. fingers, but to see like, hey, if we get repetition of the song, are we going to create more uses of that sound on TikTok? If so, is that going to generate more Instagram followers? Is it going to create more streams on Spotify and Apple? And we're starting to see the net effect of that. But that mm-hmm. was a calculated uh, approach to who are the right influencers? How are they using this song? Are they actually tagging our artists in it? Or are they just using the song? And does it feel authentic? And for every artist, it's a little bit different. Um, but it's nice to have a tool shelf of really easy ways and efficient ways to use paid media to help support an artist. Um, and it's it's different for everyone. What, uh, tell me about influencer marketing right now, uh, because uh, I feel like it's dramatically shifted in even the last six months. What do you? What is an approach right now of influencer marketing? You mentioned TikTok. Is it uh, specifically? Is it we find five TikTokers who have combined, you know. 10 million followers and we pay them a boatload of money to do a dance to the song or do a drawing to the song or just walk down the street, do something to the song? Or is it more nuanced than that? Is that still what influencer marketing is right now? I think in the right conditions where you have maybe major drivers like radio, sync, TV looks, big social audience, the added layer of influencers consistently using your song becomes you know, really powerful tool. Uh, that said, uh, in the absence of that, I, I've seen a terrible misuse of funds and disillusion of what influencers right. can do. Posts come in, they come out, and what are you left with? It, right. the, the video may have had a million views or multiple millions of views, but um, at the end of the day, is that building a richer story for you? Are you getting audience? Are you generating mm-hmm. streams that that you can turn into a larger business? And um, I would say more than not, uh, we don't see success from from influencer campaigns. And so, to, again, it kind of goes back to context. Like, are you? do you have the right conditions? This is a moment of opportunity. Can you be opportunistic about it? And at mm-hmm. that point, finding the right influencers that speak to the right audience that is 
communicating the right message for your song theoretically could be powerful. Um, mm. But more than not, it, it, it to me becomes, you know, a, a high risk, high return proposition. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard numbers like unless you can spend a hundred thousand dollars on influencer marketing, it's not worth it. And I've also heard that's the best way to burn cash and and waste money is by paying uh, influencers a lot of money to do something. I've also heard uh, that TikTok is like buying a lottery ticket, and it's not about getting five people with ten million followers. It's about maybe getting a hundred people with even just combined you know, 50,000 followers because the TikTok algorithm is so crazy that you just never even know. I mean, you know, Ari's take decided to get on TikTok uh, after I was dragging my heels for many, many months. And our second post that we posted on TikTok when we literally had four followers got 100,000 views organically. Like literally, I have no idea how to this day how that happened. And then like, boom, we're at thousands of followers. So it's like I TikTok is so... Uh, befuddling to me. I don't really understand it, but like with that, it's kind of like, well, there's a there's a something behind the school of thought is like, well, don't pay a TikToker with five million followers, you know, fifty thousand dollars. Why not pay fifty TikTokers who each have a few thousand followers, a, a couple hundred bucks, or maybe not even, maybe fifty bucks each, or so. Who knows? You know, it's like I I'm curious if you like specifically what you're, you're finding in TikTok. Um, influencer marketing these days is kind of what that looks like. I think there's there's merit to micro-influencers that speak to the right audience, but mm-hmm. I think our line would be spend that money on yourself. We've mm-hmm. taken a lot of artists, introduced them to the platform, um, and helped them take full advantage of it without spending a penny. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where your narrative and the content you're making is king. I think TikTok's incredibly interesting, at least right now. We'll see in a year or two years if we're having the same conversation, but it's this uh, amazing algorithm that surfaces really interesting content to people that you would never be able to get in front of, uh, allowing good content to win. And it's, mm-hmm. it's formulaic by best practice and approach to some respects, you know, it's mm. a nonlinear thing. You film vertically, you have a minute right. to communicate a story, you use hashtags to get in front of people and then content wins. And I think that's really empowering. So mm. I would break off the conversation of influencers from TikTok. And I would look at TikTok and say, this is a discovery platform. I can use it in a really empowering way to reach prospective audience. Once they see my content, what happens? And what what I think is really cool is there's a lot of discovery on TikTok. And from there, it moves to following on Instagram because they're entertained by someone on TikTok, but they want to understand their vibe and who they are and what they're posting on stories. And they follow on Instagram. Uh, you know, it's so well embedded with um, Apple Music that you see, mm-hmm. you know, uses of, of sounds translate to streams. So it's a really mm. incredible discovery uh, medium. I don't think yeah. you need a budget for it to be successful as you, know, you found in your second post. Yep. Great. Um, I want to take some questions here uh, from people that we have. Um, Andrea, I'm going to um, uh, call on you here and allow you to uh, talk if you want to just ask your question. Now, Andrea Piperny is a great um, uh, soul uh, R&B artist out of Canada. Um, Andrea, there, do you want to ask your question about? Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, guys, uh, how are you? Thank you so much uh, for all this info, by the way. It's super interesting. Um, I My question was about budget. Um, I'm an independent artist, so you know how it is. Um, I was wondering, what do you feel 
um, would be the minimum budget necessary to have a successful campaign. I mean, obviously I know there's probably a huge range, but for someone, let's say who's an independent artist, um, and let's say we're talking about a single, do you kind of go into it with like, this is the minimum that we're seeing for, to, you know, to really kind of cover all the important bases and that kind of thing? Well, I think that there's some bare necessities, your recording costs, uh, some creative needs, you know, you need single art, things like that. Um, but we've worked with artists that have had uh, very little budget and others that have. And I think um, it, uh, there's certainly a sliding scale of how you can appropriate budget most effectively. But what I would say for independent artists is um, there's a great opportunity through kind of the democratized ways of releasing music, putting your video on YouTube, using social media creatively to reach people because the algorithm's working for you, that can supplement the need of having budget. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly there's you know a benefit sometimes for having a remix that connects you with a larger audience on Spotify. And that mm -hmm. might be a, you know, a, a full buyout type of arrangement with a remixer and you could spend a few thousand dollars there. And uh, making a music video, you know, doesn't have to be expensive, but also is hard to, to make for free. So, um, you know, there's definitely the line line, the 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 um, budget lines, recording costs, marketing costs, PR costs, travel and pr promo. I think you have to look at again what's your goal, and then how do you get there? And you start to through that path figure out where the costs are, and then you have to figure out, you know, how do you how do you cover that? But I guess that the larger message is. Um, plenty of artists, I believe, have been able to uh, creatively figure out how to support the first zero to 10 steps. Um, and I think it's important to try to do that in the absence of having significant budget so that you really present proof of concept and train and teach yourself yeah. how to be resourceful and, and grow. I think that's important. Like we spend a lot of time with artists, like just trying to talk them out of hiring us. You know what I mean? Because I feel... I'd say probably 80% of the time, you know, because I think it's super important to kind of feel your way through this, right? See what's working, lean into your audience, like see, you know, what's reacting, what isn't reacting. Like, have you put out music before? Like, um, or do you have enough music to have a consistent rollout strategy? You know, I, I tend to kind of discourage large spends when you're a developing artist and brand new. You know, um, there's just so much you need to figure out, like with best practices and what you're able to do on your own and, and who you are and who your fans are. You know, what I mean, there's a lot of learning there. Yeah, I don't know that many artists have spent their way to success. And I think we've also seen the inverse, which is the limitations and restrictions is what makes creativity so good. So there's been videos that have happened by accident that cost nothing that have been some of the best videos. And, and I think limitations, uh, you know, can serve an artist really well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so speaking of budget and prices and everything, the elephant in the room, um, I mean, Joe Flip asks, uh, what are the fees and pricing involved with black box? What is the black box pricing model? I mean, is this like what management do you take a commission? Uh, do you work like a label? Are you taking ownership? Uh, are you work like a publicist? Do you take a monthly fee? What, what, how does black yeah. box work? So I kind of answered, I was answering questions as Brian was uh -huh. speaking earlier. Um, and I, and I saw Joe's question um, and I could get more specific. We have a rate card and it's a monthly retainer. 
And mm -hmm. we decided to do that um, so that we could provide a really great service, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, some publicists do this where they want certain artists because they want leverage and they want the cool and hip artists because they want to, you know, um, make sure that their leverage with media is great. We're, we're a little different in the sense that we want to make sure we can help an artist. So we're not genre you know, uh, specific. We're not about having the cool and the hip. We're about, can we help this artist go from A to B, you know? Um, and we have like a, a service that includes everything, like a little bit of PR, a little bit of uh, digital execution. You know, we have a great distribution deal with The Orchard where all of our clients can take advantage of without signing directly. So that is the same price for everyone, just because I want to protect that service. Sure. So that is probably in line with like what a, a, a good PR person would charge. Mm -hmm. So that's like the all you can eat model, 5K a month kind of thing. But like I said earlier, we'd like to help artists, right? So if uh, we like to evaluate where they are, and we also have like a strategy kind of session where it's a one-time fee and we give them the strategy and then they go away and do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's the same price of one month's work. You know what I mean? So we tend to kind of like, without diluting our service, try to respond to individual needs, mm -hmm. you know, but and we want to give really high quality. Sure. Yeah. And I think two things we learned through the building of the company is one, when you a la carte certain things for very specific needs, sometimes the actual goal is not served because there's this illusion that, oh, if I just get this press look or this Spotify playlist, then I have a career. And so, so to Livia's earlier mention, the idea of bundling a lot of value and things all marching in the same direction is what uh, has been really important to us. And, and as such, we built the retainer model. The other thing mm -hmm. is under a retainer model, uh, you're, you're motivated by the success as qualified by the artist and, and they are, you know, in charge there and, and, and their partner, whether it be a label manager or nobody. Um, and therefore, uh, efforts are aligned. So if the goal is uh, not to sell a million singles and we were participating in the back end, there'd be, a, you know, a conflict of interest. You know, we, we well, I know your goal is to right. save the world, but we want to make money too. So how do we sell a million singles if that, if that, you know, isn't the thing. And I think the purity mm. of, of listening to the goal of an artist and being covered uh, for our services allows us to rightfully make the decisions that support their goal versus what best serves us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a great point. And, and uh, Livia, I'm curious to hear, uh, you know, you came from uh, running Warner Records. Uh, you're the president there and, and, and you ran marketing there. Before that, you, you ran uh, marketing Atlanta Records. I mean, you've been worked in the major label world uh, running these big labels for many, many years. And it's an extremely different model uh, than what you have now, where it is all about the ownership and owning the IP and and it's 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 quite different so when you decided to start black box what was the thinking behind that i would imagine coming from this system that you knew so well there might have been some urge to um create a similar model that what you were used to so so i i think 
I've been kind of like a CMO, right? Most of my life at yeah. these major labels. So to me, Black Box really started with trying to do marketing right and artist mm. development right. So to me, it's more about that, how it gets applied. So if you're a creator who wants to keep IP, then we become a really good solution for that. But we're not exclusively only about that because our belief is when we're trying to help artists, Again, it's back to not one size fits all. Some mm-hmm. artists need a major label to be successful. They need radio promotion. And right now mm-hmm. you can do that independently, but it's not as effective as signing to a label that's got leverage. But what I like to say that we we do do and accomplish is that we do empower the artists to get better deals with majors, right? And better partnerships because at least they're coming in with an audience. So mm. for us, our platform is about great marketing. And to answer your question about why not just go to a label, I feel that what's happening right now in the label system is it's it's gotten a lot more complicated with all the various digital service providers, right? Sure. So they're more in the business of like watching the cream rise and harvesting, you know? and kind Mm -hmm. of working what rises, right? And I actually do think, and not everybody, but some labels really believe if it's rising, it's worthwhile. And if it's not rising, it ain't worthwhile. Mm -hmm. That's where I parted ways with my former self because I I don't think we're in a marketplace right now where a lot of great stuff is not being signed. And it's not being signed because it's hard. And they don't have the easy solution for it. So boom, that's where I kind of said, we need another game. Uh, and that's why black box exists. Gotcha. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, Rigby, I want to bring you in. You have an interesting question um, about about artist names. Um, Rigby, do you want to uh, ask your question directly? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, it. just like I put in the comments there, I um, I took on an artist name two years ago, and it's been really um really powerful for me in a lot of ways that I didn't even expect. Um, it really helped me learn into exactly what I think you were talking about, like having an identity as an artist. And like, I found when I did that, a lot of things in my business just started to like increase exponentially, which was awesome. But awesome. now I'm finalizing credits on my first record and um, I can't decide how to credit my songwriting. Do I want to be Rigby Summer or do I want to go with my given name? And um, yeah, so I'm just curious from a branding perspective, how would you approach that? I think by assigning a different name to your writing, you give yourself freedom to write outside of your artist brand. If that's what you want to do as a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, so it really depends on what you want to try to accomplish. If if you're only going to be writing for Rigby, then you might want to just keep it all the same. Right. And you love the name. But having a different brand for your writing opens you up to write for others if that's what you choose to do in the future. So um, I am a fan of keeping that personal. I've seen that with an artist, Falu, who's a producer and an artist, but he produces under his natural his own name. You know, like, um, so, so that he can work with other people. Um, so it depends on what your goals are, I think. Well, it feels like Rigby is like me as an artist and a performer. Yeah. But like those songs were written as Nadia, like that came from like the heart of like 
who I am. And so that's part of where I've been leaning towards it. But there are some people who look at me like I just murdered their kitten when I tell them my real name. And they're like, what, Rigby's not your real name? <laughs> like, what? Mm-hmm. Well, they should grow up. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh-huh. But, uh, whatever feels good. But I think by calling it Nadia, you're writing, then you can write for J.P. Sachs one day. Right. Yeah. There you go. Well, and that's and that's an interesting um thing because there are, you know, most artists out there use their birth name for the songwriting credits. And especially when you register with your performing rights organization, um, you use your birth name. However, some don't. I mean, uh, we just had uh, uh someone at BMI come in and chat with us with um and he discussed aliases and he discussed how even in the BMI backend you can put a bunch of different alias names I mean you know Bruno Mars is a great example of someone you know his birth name uh, Peter Gene Hernandez uh, he wrote under that name for many years then when he became the artist Bruno Mars if you actually look at his songwriting credits it's all Bruno Mars is the songwriter even though that's not his birth name and yeah, when he does the Bruno Mars project, he's using the Bruno Mars uh, name, artist name as the songwriter too, which I find is a bit more unique. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. It can be so liberating to have a separate artist name. And and um, that's, that's yeah, really interesting. Cool. Awesome. Thank you, Rigby. Um, cool. So I want to... Uh, be respectful of your time and, and cut it there. I, I so appreciate you, uh, Livia and Brian, for for coming on and, and teaching us all about uh, how you approach marketing these days. It's so innovative. It's so different. It's so cool and it's so effective. Which is which is you know why I wanted to chat with you today. Um, we didn't even get into the myriad of case studies that you uh, do have. Um, I mentioned a bunch of them at the front at the introduction, um, but it's it's such a cool model, and I appreciate anyone in the industry who can um, basically has that DIY ethos and take something and work and help independent artists to succeed without giving up ownership uh, right away, too soon, too early when they're they're not ready. So I, I really appreciate that you empower artists that way. Um, I have one final question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. What does it mean to you to make it in the new music business? And each of you can can take that however you want. Hmm. For me, it's taking an artist with no connections, you know, who's talented and being able to bring them all the way. Like, you know, not being failed by the system, not falling Mm. through the cracks. Mm. That to me is my greatest, you know, my, my greatest goal and aspiration is that black box could continue to do that. Yeah. I think for me, I, sh- I share similarity to that my greatest joy in the new music ecosystem is the opportunity for an artist to define their success, which I think previous to how democratized it is, is pretty one dimensional hit songs, which is awesome, but not, not always uh, the singular metric of success and helping to architect a path to get there. Even if I'm first step, second step or the final step. Um, that to me is is success. Beautiful. Brian Popowitz, Livia Tortella, thank you so much for coming on the new music business. Very much appreciated. Have a great day.
episode is brought to you by DistroKid. DistroKid is a distribution service that can get your music into all the DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram. Over a million artists have used DistroKid. I'm one of those artists. I've used DistroKid to get my music out, distribute some of my songs. As you know, as I look into all of these distribution services, I test them out. And DistroKid is great. They offer a ton of features annual fee, unlimited uploads, and you keep 100% of your royalties. Check out districtkid.com. 